You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 202. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. So I uh, today we're going to talk about Twitter a little bit, or else we're going to start with Twitter. We're actually going to get into a little bit more. We're going to get into Facebook, and we're going to get into... Um, um, what else are we going to get into? We're going to get into, uh, uh, well, what Jack uh, Dorsey is doing now, Web3, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, uh, look at uh, tweets from Chris Dixon on the matter. But uh, let's start with Twitter. You know, there are a lot of badly aged tweets out there. Badly aged tweets, poorly aged tweets. Uh, badly aged tweets kind of sounds funnier, but I think it sounds wrong. Um, sometimes people tweet something and then, you know, a year later, six months later, three days later, several hours later, it's clear that uh, what they were saying was uh, completely wrong and it was completely bad hot take. But I think in 2015, Jack Dorsey probably wrote the baddest, uh, the the uh, most badly aged tweet of them all. And that goes with this. Jack Dorsey, 2015, says, quote, Twitter stands for freedom of expression. We stand for speaking truth to power, and we stand for empowering dialogue. It's really interesting because these days in 2021, if a uh, CEO of a social media company says that, they would be absolutely vilified for saying that exact same thing. Uh, So now Twitter has a new CEO, uh, Parag Agarwal. I can't say I know a whole lot about him yet, but uh, all indications are that this person, he is an insider, and he's likely to accelerate the trends that already exist. I believe that Jack Dorsey's statement in 2015 saying that he wants to uh, make Twitter stand for freedom of expression, I think that's actually what he really wanted. And I think that um, uh, to the extent that they have uh, gone off of that path to the extent, <laughs> and that it is a big extent, to the extent that they've gone away from that path, it's because he's been pushed by the company himself. He's he's maybe at the front of the train, but the rest of the train is throwing all its weight around and kind of controlling where the train goes. So he really did not have as much power as CEO as uh, as maybe you would think, or maybe he, he should have had. Um so anyway, now with uh, Jack Dorsey stepping down from Twitter, I think that the last remaining link to the free speech platform idea is severed. And now Twitter is completely off the rails. And uh, to put it another way, the inmates are running the asylum. And we'll see you know, exactly what that means, exactly uh, what Twitter becomes. I don't know if it's it, – it's almost like it will become like a single subreddit where you know each subreddit reddit kind of works because each um, and and reddit does have some censorship and all that you know but each subreddit has different rules which is why it works um works pretty great um sort of like locals where i am also each each local has different rules and different moderation standards and so twitter will kind of just become one of them rather than the global marketplace of ideas um and uh and, and yeah we will uh we will continue to uh, uh, look at that progress here on The Local Maximum. So that'll be a really interesting story. Maybe we won't focus on it too much. We've already done a lot. But man, what happens? What is the sociological experiment that we had here? What is the sociological experiment of Twitter starting in 2006, 2008, 
You know, the internet's still pretty fairly new in 2006, but uh, the mobile web is unimaginatively new in 2006. You know, people don't have smartphones yet. It's based on texting. And so Twitter comes out and they say, you can really quickly share your thoughts with the world. And a few years later, people were actually doing it. Celebrities were doing it. It didn't take long. Think about that. 2006 to 2009. 2009 was when the plane landed in the Hudson. And that's when news was first broke on Twitter when the plane landed in the Hudson. The next few years was were um, kind of the golden age of Twitter where news was consistently being broke on Twitter. The bin Laden raid was broke on uh, the story was broke on Twitter. Uh, people, people were talking about it on Twitter. And, um, and it was kind of an open marketplace of ideas. You know, it was sort of the, um, uh, there were some aspects of the Arab Spring where people were using Twitter uh, to get their message out there. Not anymore. Now it's uh, all uh, government-approved speech on Twitter, pretty much. I mean, you know, if you want to be a little bit distant on Twitter, you can do it. Uh, you know, you just have to know how to walk the walk and dance the dance, so to speak. And uh, and there, if you're if you're smart enough, you can kind of know the lines where you can uh, that that you can draw around. But you know, that's um, that's not really it, that that doesn't change the fact that uh, Twitter has become what it has become, which is a um, you know, which is a uh, essentially a an editorial, um, an editorialized uh, content feed. So let's take a look at some of the articles about that. First of all, we have here on the Wall Street Journal, new Twitter CEO Parag Agarwal restructures leadership team. So this is pretty common when a new CEO comes in. A bunch of people who are used to working with the old boss they kind of step down. And the new person brings their own people in. In this case, we have the engineering lead uh, and the design leader out. So clearly, there will be cultural change at Twitter. But in what direction? New York Times tries to paint um, uh, Davis. Who's Davis? Davis is one one of the two that I mentioned. Uh, Let me just make sure. That's Dantley Davis, who is the research lead. Uh, I, I feel like the article in the New York Times, which, you know, I, I don't know how much I could trust the New York Times these days. Maybe he never trusted, but they kind of try to paint Davis, who was the um, research lead as this kind of bully who like goes around trying to get peak performance out of people and uh, and sort of annoys them. So I, I don't know. I don't I don't know if there's that mentality um you know, a lot of those quotes that they're a lot of the sources they're coming from could be from employees who either just they didn't like being pushed that hard, or maybe it wasn't pushing them that hard. Maybe they could just be disgruntled employees. You really never know. So I don't really know if that's true. What's the alternative to um, to that management style? Uh, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, I feel like you can go from one extreme to the other, which is indulging the whim of every employee and um, who they feel needs to be banned, who they feel needs to be promoted, and uh, well, within the company and and on the platform. Um, And so, you know, I I imagine Twitter has a lot of lobbying efforts from employees on on where the uh, where the platform should go, as we did at Foursquare. Hey, I lobbied the the company leadership on where Foursquare should go. But I feel like with Twitter, it's going to get very, it gets very political, very personal. And uh, I sort of wonder, uh, you know, uh, rather than (laughs) trying to do work, which I don't know what features uh, Twitter has 
created in the last five years. Certainly keeping the lights on is hard enough, but you know, as far as innovation goes, I'm not sure. So we'll, we'll see where this goes. The, base, the bottom line of that article, I think my takeaway from the Wall Street Journal is that uh, article and the New York Times article uh, is that um, uh, the, the, there, there's just going to be a whole uh, cultural shift within Twitter. They have big goals. They want to add 123 million users by 2023, and it's roughly doubled since 2017 to 211 million. So um, in the last four years, you know, they, they already increased by 100 million. So yeah, maybe in the next two years, they could add another 123 million. It's possible. But also, if you go to the Twitter statistics, which I'll post on localmaxradio.com slash 202, the growth rate is slowing, and sometimes that's hard, too. And, and now that they're not kind of a, a universal marketplace of, um, of a, like a microblogging service that anyone could use, uh, they're kind of, I feel like the, their growth will continue to slow. Um, but, you know, they'll... They'll be trying, so we'll see. We'll see how they do. I just, uh, I, I think it's going to be a lot more difficult for them to add those users than they think, because who hasn't heard of Twitter? Who's not on Twitter? I mean, perhaps they can expand internationally, but I feel like it's already. They've already been around for fifteen years. It's going to be, um, you know, the proliferation of of smartphones and 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 that kind of thing has sort of um, saturated since then. So it just kind of stands to reason that it will get harder and harder for them to add active users in that way. But we'll see. Also, on the eve of this, we see more purges of users. Some of the Indian press from India is saying that, um, uh, is reporting that uh, users have been purged and people have been uh, removed from their follower lists. Uh, They have taken to sending memes to the new CEO about this. Twitter says that it is a bot purge only. And so far as I can tell, I've seen no evidence to contradict that no well-known account losses have been publicized, but there could be some shadow banning or shadow unfollowing that come along with that. I've seen, you know, at Foursquare, sometimes we've uh, done things to deal with spam uh, that has been kind of uh, taking people off who are using the platform legitimately. And it's very sad because we don't want to, you know, stop people from using Swarm and Foursquare and checking in and, uh, and and having fun with that. I still have fun with that. I'd be really upset if I were banned from the system because of a faulty uh, spam algorithm. But I don't, I, I can't imagine that there's not something similar going on here, um, at least in addition to anything that's kind of malevolent, which might also be going on. Still some crazy stuff out of Twitter. You know, you got banned for saying that Kyle Rittenhouse is innocent on Twitter, even though he was found innocent by a jury. He was found not guilty by a jury. And I don't care what your political position is. How is that not insane? You know, if you want to have any sort of range of opinion or debate on the platform, it seems like no, no range is acceptable here. Maybe you don't agree, but in what universe is that even outside the range of acceptable debate? I'd like to see someone defend that. Um, you know, I, maybe they don't defend it (laughs) and Twitter doesn't defend it because they don't have to, they just do it. (laughs) They, 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 uh, the last time, uh, there was that one time when Jack Dorsey was on, uh, was it, it was Joe Rogan with his, uh, trust and safety person and, uh, they didn't look too good. They haven't done it since then. 
Uh, I feel like there is, oh yeah, this is a good one. I'm going to post this uh, just to see what I'm talking about here. Uh, there are a couple of tweets, uh, one that was banned and one that was not. This was pasted by, posted by the uh, Libertarian Party of New Hampshire, which tweeted it. There are blue checks, so maybe they were able to get away with it. So their tweet was was not banned. So, okay, there is some, you know, there, th- this is not totalitarian. It's only authoritarian. Uh, so they posted their uh, Libertarian Party of Kentucky, uh, I guess their kind of sister organization in Kentucky, uh, a tweet, which they said, watching this trial, it's ever more obvious that Kyle Rittenhouse did nothing wrong. And Twitter uh, said, this is violating our rules. It's, viol- it's glorifying violence. And you must delete this tweet in order to use your account. So that happened. Someone else tweeted, a 17-year-old white supremacist domestic terrorist drove across state lines armed with AR-15. By the way, um, all, uh, almost all of that was, is false. Uh, he shot and killed two people who had assembled to affirm the value, dignity, and worth of black lives. Uh, actually, it turned out that um, uh, th- those people were... Uh, were rioting, and they really weren't there in a kind of a protest um, capacity, it seems. So anyway, this, uh, you know, the the second tweet was fine. Everyone was retweeting it, people were quoting it, people were liking it, and Twitter didn't say anything. And you could accuse a 17-year-old of being a white supremacist domestic terrorist, even if you're nothing of the thing, and Twitter's fine with it. But uh, you know, if you say that you agree with a jury, <laughs> then you have to take down your tweet. I just think this is the, I, I just think, how could somebody make this the policy without having an incredible amount of cognitive dissonance? That's what I want to know. And so it's sort of like, it, I feel like the people who are in Twitter, who are running this in Twitter, don't have the same, you know, they they don't have the same thought process that I do. They don't have the same... Uh, concern that I do if they are contradicting themselves or if they're worried about, you know, uh, something not being quite right, or if they're worried about fairness, they, they just, it's almost like they hired people where that's kind of switched off in their brains, like they hired sociopaths over there. That's kind of how I'd feel like. So um, anyway, it's one thing if Twitter doesn't want opinions on the subject, um, but you know, then they clearly allow uh, a false Rittenhouse story. So it, it's just crazy. Um, Article from the Federalist, Josiah Lippincott, which you can follow on. No, no, you cannot follow on him on Twitter. He is, uh, he is gone. It says uh, on November 22nd, Twitter suspended me for saying Kyle Rittenhouse did nothing wrong after his acquittal. Um, so putting his policy prescriptions aside from now, that's nuts. That's, it's not like, it, well, first of all, no matter what the jury said, you should be allowed to disagree with the jury. But now, you know, that, that's kind of part of a, uh, uh, that, that's, that, that's, that's part of a democracy. Like, you know, you're allowed to disagree with, with decisions that were made. But to say that you agree with what a jury said and then that's banned, that's just, it's, it's crazy. Um, I, and, and I, when I use the word crazy, I always feel like there could be a more descriptive term. Help me out here, guys, if anyone knows, because I, I just feel like it's so, you know, out of the range of what you would expect. It's almost like there's, you know, there's got to be some thought process here where, hey, you know, we're banning left and right. Are there some like red flags that uh, we can see 
that, uh, to tell us that we're, that we're going too far. And if you had set up those red flags, let's say Jack Dorsey and his pals founding Twitter wrote, they kind of wrote a, a, a manifesto in 2010, say manifesto or, you know, a, a guidebook on 2010 for future Twitter. And they said, they got together and they said, these are the red flags that say you're probably going too far on removing people uh, from the platform. I feel like those would be going off left and right. They probably would be breaking all of them by now. So basically now, any controversial public issue of importance in which there could be multiple viewpoints, Twitter now decides to take an editorial stance. So we just all have to understand that. Um, and by the way, with the Rittenhouse thing, you could probably say the same thing about other criminals like murderers. You could probably say they did nothing wrong and you won't be banned. It's only because this is a controversial issue of importance. And, uh, you know, the, uh, <laughs> there's a certain group of people who really, it's really important to them that the right narrative comes out of this one. Um, why, why was this the one that was picked up by the, by the country, by the world, by the, by the, uh, by the shadowy elites. No, that's, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know why that is, but, but that's what happens. Elon Musk, he likes to, uh, he likes to dump, dump in on all this. He's becoming an effective troll, Elon Musk. Uh, he adds that Soviet meme. I don't know if you've seen this. This has been posted, well, I mean, this has probably been posted since the 1960s when it's happened. Um, there was this um, member of the secret police in the Soviet Union, uh, Nikolai uh, Yezhov, um, and when there was a great purge, uh, you know, he, well, first of all, he was the one doing the purges. So he was the purger who then became the purgee. So he got purged uh, and then Stalin removed him all the photographs. So there's kind of a famous photograph where he's in the photograph next to a river with Stalin and a bunch of people. And then <laughs> the next time the photograph's there, he's just been essentially removed, photoshopped out. Uh, they didn't have Photoshop, but, you know, removed from the photograph. So it's like, hey, he was never there. Changed the past. So Musk has Agarwal as Stalin and Jack as Yezhov. Probably not fair yet because uh, Agarwal hasn't, uh, hasn't uh, <laughs> we haven't seen uh, his uh, unique stamp on the company f come to fruition yet. But um, I have a feeling that uh, Elon has a certain, um, a certain feel for what's going on there. And so, again, Musk has become a troll on Twitter, a pretty good one. He's maybe not... Not the most brilliant posts of all the trolls, but because of who he is, he gets a lot of sting, which is uh, always really interesting. One thing that I'm concerned about, will we be obsessed with Twitter for long after it's even relevant? For example, just like boomers still care what CNN has to say, uh, there are some shows out there that just get outraged about what CNN says um, every episode. I'm sure there's a lot of content there, but... I mean, they've lost so much of their audience. I, people don't watch cable news that much. I watch maybe one or two shows, and even for me, I, I watch it way more than, than, than most people do. Um, and so, uh, but I still think like, you know, uh, plat uh, platforms, uh, content like CNN, uh, a channel like CNN still carries a lot of weights with, still carries a lot of weight with, um, with boomers, with people of a, of a certain generation because of what they re represent. So maybe millennials will put an undue weight on what Twitter is doing long after its dominance has ceased. Have we gotten there yet? I'm not sure. I really don't think so, though. I think that Twitter is still important. I think a lot of uh, celebrities and um, politicians and movers and shakers are still on there. 
Uh, and I think a lot of ideas are still broken on there, although that's changing. So maybe in a few years uh, that we will be talking too much about Twitter and getting too outraged about Twitter, even though it doesn't matter anymore. We've talked about some of the alternatives before on the show. Episode 153 was a really good one about how Twitter is ultimately causing the decentralization of the internet by pushing people out. One example is Mastodon, which is this kind of dark horse candidate, this federated Twitter, which uh, I haven't really been able to get into it too much, but it keeps growing. And the more outrageous Twitter gets, the more people do go on to Mastodon. And then, of course, there are other platforms that are not as much like Twitter, but still alternatives. Like, you know, I talk about locals here a lot. I talk about Odyssey here a lot. But um, anyway, it's the interesting thing that I see is that Twitter is can can probably turn this around, but they have absolutely no desire to do so. And they keep on digging that hole for themselves deeper and deeper. Also check out episode 25 if you want to go back in history to the great Twitter purge of 2018. Uh, that was just kind of the beginning of, uh, you know, that was, uh, that was the first time they were purging tons and tons of users from their role, like not spam users, but real content creators that they were like, nope, we've had enough, rather than just um, going... Uh, you know, going after certain individuals. Uh, so, I, you know, I might actually go back into that solo show. I remember that one kind of done in a hurry. I think that was the one that I did when I was in Ireland. But um, I think that uh, I, I, I think a lot has changed since then. And, uh, you know, they had a chance to turn it around then because of all the pushback that happened and they didn't. And now they are several layers deeper into the abyss and they're just going to co go deeper. Now, what's Jack Dorsey up to? Why is he leaving Twitter? I'm surprised he didn't leave much sooner because Twitter has nothing to do with what he wanted. And so why did he stay for probably the last three years? So now he's focusing on his company Square, which is now called Block. I think I, think I get it. Square into Block, making something two-dimensional into three-dimensional. It's like adding a, a, a plus or a max at the end of everything. I mean, I support adding max at the end of everything. But, you know, uh, the, the, he's now adding a dimension. So the next time it will be a four-dimensional cube. Uh, so Square changes its name to Block, and it's to emphasize, uh, it's to emphasize a few things, but uh, among them blockchain and the Web3 focus. What do I think of the Web3 term? The Web3 term is very interesting because... Um, you know, you have Web 1.0, Web 2.0, and uh, I'll get to in a minute what that means. Um, and so I'll, 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 I'll leave it to Chris Dixon to explain because he does a very good job. He has a series of tweets that he did recently. Let's see how recently that was. That was back in da -da -da, September 26, but I want to bring it up now because it's very important. And I talked about his article back in way at the, at the beginning of the local maximum. Uh, way back in episode six, Facebook data in the election, I talked about his article, Why Decentralization Matters. And he talked about a coming wave of applications that are decentralized. And he's refined his theory a little bit. This guy's really smart. I trust him. Uh, so let's look at his tweets. He's, he he kind of lays out what's web one, what's web two, and what is web three. Web one, roughly 1990 
to 2005 was about open protocols. Think like, you know, the World Wide Web, the internet, basically, uh, and the World Wide Web, where you can go in and, uh, you know, you request a website from a server, they give you the HTML and the JavaScript, and the JavaScript maybe that is the website and, uh, and the images that go on the website. And, you know, it's peer to peer, no central location that you're going to. So web one was about open protocols that were decentralized and community governed. Most of the value accrued to the edges of the network, users and builders. Web two, roughly 2005, 2020, was about siloed, centralized services run by corporations. Most of the value accrued to a handful of companies like Google, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook. Now, Web 2, to me, has a slightly different connotation. I remember Web 2.0, we were talking about this in 2005, 2006, so the date is correct. And back then, uh, I was working on an application called Sticky Map, and Sticky Map was kind of a Foursquare before there was Foursquare. And so people would I use the Google Maps API, and people would post things on the map, and there'd be a wiki involved, and uh, you can like annotate points of interest. And it was kind of Sticky Map because you added images, icons to the map, and so in that way it was kind of fun. Uh, and um, I, I think, the, and, and so one of the big uh, 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 upgrades that that sort of system had from previous websites was, you know, back in the 90s and early 2000s when you had Web 1.0, a uh, uh, website was mostly static, but now you had JavaScript. Now you had the ability to make, uh, like click a button on a website that makes a call and makes all bunch of things happen on the uh, on the screen. Like, for example, I could change the size of the map. I could reload the map as people are, you know, scrolling it back and forth. I could have, if someone clicks on something, on the map, uh, you know, a, a dialogue box comes up, all sorts of things like that, um, that almost make uh, the the web turn into applications. Because before, you know, a website was kind of like pulling up a, a text document, whereas now pulling up a website is really more like pulling up an app on your computer or an app on your phone. It's really, uh, you know, there's so much that you can do in the browser. So to me, that was really the big change of Web 2.0. But of course, also, uh, a big part of that was centralized corporations because I think that a lot of those, um, a, a lot of those special, uh, what do you call it? A lot of those special widgets and things uh, were required, like a lot of code to get right and a lot of um, organization to get right. And then, of course, because you had mobile come into play and you had all this data come into play, you had kind of a benefit to centralization. Um, in all respects. And so that's what I think that um, uh, Chris Dixon, uh, th 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 that's what I think feeds into the point that Chris Dixon is making. So I, if I could read that last sentence again, most of the value accrued to a handful of corporations like Google, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook that built the platforms for all this. Okay. Now the next tweet is, we are now at the beginning of the Web3 era, which combines the decentralized community-governed ethos of Web1 with the advanced modern functionality of web two. Uh, and so if I could go back, uh, and so if I can um, uh, 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 um, read a little bit further uh, about what he's saying about big tech, um, and this is going back to the article from that I read in episode six, why decentralized ma uh, decentralization matter, and he's still talking about it, and I still agree. When they hit the top of the S-curve, and uh, by the way, the S-curve is sort of when you, you grow uh, slowly 
Uh, that's the bottom part of the S. Then the middle part of the S is when you're growing quickly because you found product market fit and you're in and you're scaling and you're increasing users, you're increasing uh, value. And then at the top is when you're kind of uh, 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 saturated, uh, where you've already gotten most of the users you can. You could increase a little bit more, but you're you're kind of you're, you're kind of, your growth is kind of slow. And clearly, that's where Twitter is right now. For example, that's where Facebook is, Google is. All of them are saturated. Um, so anyway, on Big Tech, he says, when they hit the top of the S-curve, their relationships with the network partic- participants change from positive sum to zero sum. To continue growing requires extracting data from users and competing with their former partners. So in other words, as if you get in early, if you get in on the ground floor on some of these platforms, you could do very well because it's win-win. But once the platform is saturated, they turn to trying to extract as much value out of you as possible. Um, and you know, it, it, that's just where they find that's just where they find the value because they don't find as much value in long-term growth anymore. And so, you know, the the people inside the corporation will you know tell the tell the management, tell the board, tell the shareholders, hey, uh, here's the best way to uh, increase our value. And that is to extract more from our customers. At least they think that is in in the long run, it seems like because it seems like they can't get that growth in the long run anymore. And so that's what they do. And so that's where, you know, a lot of that's where a lot of the frustrations uh, come in initially. Uh, Now, I think a lot of a lot of what Twitter's doing is self sabotage. Uh, But I think it that is authored by the mindset of extracting as much from the users as possible. So the user becomes uh, valuable at the beginning of Twitter, a user in 2010, incredibly valued to Twitter. You're going to help us increase our, uh, our network effect. And so every single user is valuable and we're going to bend over backwards to, uh, continue building for them. Now a user is not valuable anymore. We're going to try to extract values from them. And now it's come to the point where I think they just hate their users and they just want to smack them around as much as possible. It's just, you see the evolution of the mindset there. So, um, in the vision outlined here by Chris Dixon, we're just going to go around the whole damn thing. We're going to create something called decentralized, uh, organizations. Bitcoin is one. Ethereum is another, and we're just starting. And essentially, the, uh, the, the main uh, value is rather than the stock of Twitter, the stock of, of Facebook or whatever, is going to be something called a token, which anyone can own. And uh, the code is set into place at the beginning to make sure that the, uh, the, the incentives line up properly. And so it really has to be created by someone. You know, I think a lot of these blockchain projects are, are you know, same with any any anything that's just starting. You know, when companies were just starting, when, when websites were just starting, there was a lot of websites. There still are a lot of websites out there that don't really uh, have a lot of use. But the ones that make it big are the ones where the people who create it have like a kind of a thought behind it. Like, this is what the future is going to be like, and I want to set it up well. So a lot of these uh, Web3 systems are about aligning ascent incentives properly, which is what's sorely missing from the internet today. And it's really exciting that we have the technology to do it. We have the technology to invent new forms of governance, essentially new forms of corporate governance. Uh, So isn't that amazing? 
Uh, and tokens are an alternative to corporation, as Dixon says here. Tokens align network participants to work together towards a common goal, the growth of the network and the appreciation of the token. So that's sort of uh, how uh, emerging technology goes. You get saturation on, on, on one level, you get research pressure on another level, and then the next paradigm comes into play. Uh, and we see that working here with Web3. So I'll post the entire uh, chain and uh, uh, the, the, the tweet storm, and, uh, which, uh, which is allowed because it's not touching on, on any of the political issues. Um, you're allowed to Twitter, criticize Twitter on Twitter, interestingly enough. But um, anyway, I'll, I'll post that all at localmaxradio.com slash 202. One last thing before we head out today. This article made me smile. This is from Mark Senadella, who is the CEO. Well, actually, wait, he was the CEO of the ladders, but uh, hold on. I feel like, yes, he still is the CEO of the ladder, but no, now it says here he is, no, he's still the CEO, but now there's uh, elite resumes, which in, in addition that he's doing. So I have to look into that. I really... Um, I'm not sure what he is, but it's on his Twitter. Uh, but anyway, he was CEO and founder of theladders.com, very successful sourcing agency. And he was on um, uh, the local maximum back on episode 64 uh, to talk about tips for finding jobs and resumes. So definitely check that out. Uh, I This article made me smile because it's entitled Mark Zuckerberg's Midlife Crisis. Uh, I'm just going to start from the beginning here. The midlife crisis happens to people after almost two decades. Things begin to get predictable, successful, but also stale, maybe a bit boring. So the time comes to spice it up. If it were you, you might buy a fancy car, go crazy for a new designer, or take a leap with a bold startup. Uh, In parentheses, that writes professional resumes for free. I guess he's talking about himself. Uh, When you're Mark Zuckerberg running the world's seventh most valuable company, you think on a bigger scale. Since Facebook touched a $1 trillion valuation this summer, he's shown the warning signs of the midlife crisis, an itch for adventure, and a change that needs to be scratched. Now he's gone and done it, changed his company name to Meta, new logo, new look, new colors. It's all about the metaverse now. So I find it interesting that uh, we have kind of a, uh, a lot of times we take together unrelated articles, but all the articles in a, a single episode here on The Local Maximum kind of have a theme and the theme in this uh, in this one is is tech saturation, and that is that you know at some point you have a certain idea, you run with it, and you grow it as big as it can be grown. Sometimes it's not as successful. Sometimes it's incredibly successful, but it doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't matter even if even if you reach the top, like Facebook, you're still like ah, this is kind of a little bit stale. I need to do something else. So all right. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg is really into the metaverse now. We've talked about this before, uh, I think, in episode. Um, let me uh, let me just make sure I get that uh, right. Episode one ninety seven. So okay, but then uh, that was for kind of our analysis, my analysis with Aaron. Uh, Senadella notes the metaverse already exists. If you were in the uh, pandemic. Uh, all, every kid has been on some kind of metaverse, you know, whether it's, it's Minecraft or all sorts of, all sorts of worlds, massively multiplayer games, all of that. And he also, um, 
It says, hey, the Google founders have done similar things. They kind of waste their money on cool moonshots that go nowhere. And like I said, this could be the same. But still, sometimes you can get a hit with this stuff. Uh, And Zuckerberg was criticized for buying Instagram and WhatsApp for billions. And yet uh, that still turned out to be the right move. So we'll see with this. Maybe, you know, maybe this is the right way to, uh, to combat saturation is to change everything up. But I feel like everyone's on a level playing field right now because Zuckerberg doesn't know what's next any more than the rest of us. And so he's trying something. He could put a lot of resources behind it and good on him for trying. But I feel like he's, he's too much in the Facebook mindset that maybe that would not um, work for the next paradigm. So again, the story remains to be seen. It's a fascinating story. I think there was another, speaking of... Uh, Speaking of saturation, I think there was another uh, another tweet by Dixon. Let me get this. Let me pull up Chris Dixon because I think this is important before I go. It was about uh, Google. Right. He said, what, what big innovations have come out of Google uh, over uh, the last five years? And there was a big kind of debate on there on whether Google has had as much influence as like Bell Labs had back in the day. You know, there's arguments that it hasn't. There's arguments that it has with uh, deep learning and, and all that. Uh, so I, uh, I don't know what to make of it, but it does feel, and, and I, I, I tweeted it this way, it does feel like Twitter or, or Google has reached its saturation point when it comes to, uh, when it comes to technological innovation. Let me just uh, make sure I could figure out what, yes, I wrote, Google is reaching a saturating, saturation point in innovation. And I think that's right. Um, that's not to say they haven't come up with anything. That's not to say they w- will not come up with anything in the future. But I feel like the Google method of doing things, their whole organization is just not built to bring us into the mid 21st century. Someone else is going to do that. And I've, of course, read George Gilder's book, Life After Google, which says exactly this will happen. He said it won't happen, or he chose to follow Google rather than Facebook and and rather than Twitter, but I think it's going to happen to those guys as well. So, all right, uh, that's enough for today. Uh, I uh, think uh, next week I'm going to have Aaron back on. I actually want to cover, I don't know if we'll get to cover this, but I really do, because a a big part of this podcast is talking about, uh, not a big part, but like a, 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 a significant, uh, we, we've done a significant number of episodes on it. It's something that I'm really into, which is social choice theory and voting systems. And it's not something that political commentators always understand that well, or as well as kind of like a mathematician would. And it turned out, I found out in the last election, uh, you know, I, Iraq, of all places, has changed their electoral system and there's all sorts of problems with it, or maybe there isn't. And so we're going to, I, I don't know yet. I want to dive into some of those articles and see uh, what the heck is going on over there uh, and, uh, and, and try to see what we could say about it when it comes to electoral systems. Because I've often used Iraq as an example, which is, I know, somewhat controversial because, you know, you can't compare what they're doing in Iraq to what we should do in the United States. Um, and so... I, you know, sometimes I try to make comparisons and it sort of, I feel like it falls flat because it's not really, it's not really comparing apples to apples, of course. But I feel like there, there are kind of lessons to be learned about 
both electoral systems and sort of human nature when we kind of look at these these uh, uh, essentially foreign cases like this that uh, that are, are very different from our own experience. So I, I, I want to look into that. I'm sure it's fascinating. The history of Iraq is very fascinating uh, anyway. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to, to get into that. All right. Uh, a few more weeks left in the year. Have a great weekend, everyone. That's the show. To support The Local Maximum, sign up for exclusive content and our online community at Maximum.Locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power.